It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. The Trump-Russia probe is back in the news, but this time it's someone with ties to Hillary Clinton under scrutiny. The Durham probe is alive and well, and it's a microscopic look at anything connected to at least the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign and maybe some other directions as well. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Mandates are starting to lift, mostly when it comes to masks, but some states are holding off on lifting the rule for children. I do not believe that mask mandates are appropriate for children. And I'm DeRoy Murdoch. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Long before the Russia-Ukraine drama, Russia was at the center of a political firestorm here, interfering in the 2016 presidential election. Independent counsel Robert Mueller investigated that, focusing on Donald Trump. Now the tables are turned. Special counsel John Durham is probing that Russia probe and how it started, and he's looking at Hillary Clinton. You think about it, they spied on a presidential campaign. That's as wrong as it gets. But then we found out from this filing that they actually spied on a sitting president, which is even worse. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan reacting to a Durham court filing in the indictment of attorney Michael Sussman, who worked for the Clinton campaign, alleging he did not disclose that as he worked with others that infiltrated computer servers at Trump Tower, then later at the Trump White House, alleging ties to a Russian bank. Based on the allegations, a tech executive and tech company used what was originally lawful access uh, into uh, government servers, but to, to gain information and to use it for an unlawful purpose. Former acting director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe says when he was in office, he met with Durham, disclosing what CIA Director John Brennan said in a meeting with President Obama in 2016. That there was a Hillary Clinton campaign plan to create fake Russia collusion uh, allegations or scandal involving Donald Trump. Former President Trump calls it a far bigger crime than Watergate. There's an awful lot that's still unknown just from what we've seen so far, including whether or not the FBI knew that this was false information as it was coming in the door, but was happy to act on it. Jim Trusty is a former federal prosecutor now with the IFRA law firm. And then I think what we're seeing a deeper glimpse into from Durham uh, through these kind of routine pleadings that just happen to mention the progress of the investigation, we're seeing more scrutiny as to the front end. How did these false stories get generated? How did they get planted? who was complicit in the decision-making there. And and that could go all the way up to Hillary Rodham Clinton. When you really get down to the end of the day, the evidence is still unfolding in a very private, non-leaked way, which I think is a good sign. Uh, But there's some big moments coming up in the near future with John and Durham. It is interesting when you go back, there were tweets from candidate Clinton. This is just about a week before the 2016 election. Time for Trump to answer serious questions about Russia was one of the tweets. Another, computer scientists have uncovered a covert operation, apparently, with server linking Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. And also, there was a statement attached to that from her advisor, 
our now current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who said this is the most direct link yet with Trump to Moscow, which may help explain Trump's bizarre adoration of Vladimir Putin. So when you see that related to the information that came out from the filing um, the other day from the special counsel Durham, what do you think? What gets really interesting with all of this to me is uh, Sussman and a partner at his firm who's referred to as campaign lawyer one in the indictment. You know, as you get into those guys, if they start sharing information with John Durham, there's really no limit to how high this could go. I mean, still interesting questions about, you know, what the crime would be. Um, There's a lot of attention that's just come out of this recent pleading on domain name service, which is essentially uh, it's a very high tech concept. It's been overstated as something like spying on Donald Trump or a wiretap. It's not getting into the substance of any communication or even the context. It's literally using that kind of analysis. It's just showing that a computer at this location might have had some sort of connection to a computer at that location. In other words, I could type in alpha in my Google search, and that would be enough to connect the two locations. It doesn't give you anything more substantive. But the way it's written in John Durham's pleading is it says there was a special arrangement, and this would likely go back to the Obama White House, where the analyst of this type of data had some sort of arrangement with the White House to do so at Trump's expense, you know, to look into things at Trump Towers or Trump's apartment or even possibly the White House after Trump took office. So these pleadings, to me, show two fundamental things. One is that the Durham probe is alive and well, and it's a microscopic look at anything connected to at least the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign and maybe some other directions as well. Uh, And it also tells me there's gonna be a big day of reckoning because the attorney general still has control over special counsel. At the end of the day, anything Durham wants to do by way of an indictment has to clear the attorney general. And there could be some real powerful names that are put in a prosecution memo to our current attorney general. That puts Merrick Garland in a tough spot, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that make it difficult? He's, uh, you know, it's a Democratic administration. Well, you know, I was at the Department of Justice for 17 years. I was a prosecutor for 10 years before that. You know, I want an attorney general that's going to have integrity to follow the evidence, no matter what the politics. But this could be a real integrity test, a historic integrity test for the attorney general. If he gets a prosecution memo that has, you know, huge names on it in terms of potential prosecution. Okay. Now, this investigation by the special counsel has been going on for, for a while. Is this partisan? Is, is Do you know John Durham? Is he a partisan? I know people on the left have tried to say that this is a partisan attempt to try to steer the whole Russia collusion away from Donald Trump somehow. Yeah, I know John a little bit, uh, very little. I know his son, actually, who's also a federal prosecutor. But, you know, John had a longstanding reputation as one of a a small group of people within DOJ that you go to with real problems, you know, with really difficult, sticky challenges. John was always on the short list for that. And I think up until his appointment in this particular investigation, he was considered, you know, uh, by all parties to be a fair broker, an aggressive but fair prosecutor and a professional one. And I've seen nothing to change that opinion of him from where I sit. I think this is a guy who is going where the evidence is. I mean, compared to the Mueller probe, where we had a leak of what they were saying, thinking, and doing almost every day, what's been maddening for people, particularly conservatives, when it comes to Durham, is they don't have a leaked fix on what he's up to. And that's how prosecutors are supposed to act. 
So I, I think he's actually doing the job professionally, plowing through, looking at where the evidence leads him. He may be dealing with really sticky issues right now in terms of attorney-client privilege, like what communications can he look at, which ones can he not between Perkins Coie and Hillary and other people around her. But I, I still have faith that he's doing the job correctly. And by the way, he probably lost about eight months or nine months of uh, grand jury usage to COVID. So I don't even think that this is you know, uh, moving at a glacial pace when you take into account that he had the inability to use grand jury for so long. Michael Sussman has pleaded not guilty, but he's not the only one caught up in the Durham investigation so far. Former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith pleaded guilty to falsifying a document related to surveillance of a Trump aide. And Igor Danchenko was indicted last November and pleaded not guilty to five counts of providing false information to the FBI. He was a key source in the discredited Steele dossier used as a basis for the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation. When you look at the indictments that have come out, uh, the Danchenko and the Sussman indictments, I mean, they really give you at least a general sense of the direction of John Durham. And it is uh, this kind of brokered false information passing through people's hands like Igor Danchenko uh, and ending up at the FBI where they used it to do things like open up FISA warrants and FISA intercepts against uh, Mr. Stone. So there's, you know, there's a lot on the periphery that we don't know. In other words, how far, where does the permission slip come from originally that got this false dossier in motion? The dossier clearly has turned out to be a bunch of fabricated information with a lot of different fingerprints contributing to its usage. Uh, but the, the criminal accountability for all that is kind of an unknown right now. You know, when that came out, though, in November, uh, Adam Schiff, who was, the, you know, the lead Democrat on that whole uh, House committee in investigating and wanting impeachment for, for, former, for President Trump at the time. And, and his reaction to that dossier was, yeah, it wasn't 100 percent accurate, we know. But we do know that that Trump was sharing data with Russian intelligence. They were trying to help him clearly win the election. So that's all fact. And we we can still allege that without without any issue at all. At some point, with all the access he had to classified information, at some point, he certainly had to know that the dossier was a hoax. And he's never corrected himself. He's doubled down and acted like, well, it's still truthy. But he's never actually taken the time to do the right thing and acknowledge that uh, he was on a goose chase. And uh, to me, that's just, you know, that just shows politics trumps evidence and that the ends justify the means for for people in positions of authority like Adam Schiff. Okay, Durham, all this stuff comes from a motion. It all comes from an indictment. We're getting one side here. What will be the other side, do you think? What is the defense to all of this? What will they do? What would you do if you were a lawyer on the other side trying to say that this indictment isn't really true? Well, I think for, you know, it's always different depending on, on who you're talking about that gets charged. We only have a couple of people on the table right this moment. Uh, for Sussman, I think that there's an awful lot of this indictment that's devoted to the idea of proving that his false statements which were, again, not about the dossier. They were about who he represented when he had conversations with the FBI general counsel. You know, a lot of that is designed to address the idea of materiality. You know, did these statements really matter to the investigation? Because if they don't matter at all, then there's no crime under 18 U.S.C. 1001, the false statement statute. Now, unfortunately for the defense, that standard of materiality is really low. You just have to show that it had some potential to affect the investigation in a negative way. So it's 
usually pretty easily met. But it's, it's striking that you have an indictment as long as Sussman's, and I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's like 20 or 30 pages for a false statement charge. You know, false statement charges you could write on a cocktail napkin. So they, they're certainly keen to the fact that the defense is going to go hard on this notion of materiality. Uh, and that could be what the trial is about. Not that the statement wasn't false, but that it just didn't matter in terms of any ongoing investigation. It's not the most sympathetic defense. And the law is not great for the defense on that. But it seems to be something that could be in play for Sussman. Legally, do you think that the people related to this with the Clinton campaign should be nervous? Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, I think that uh, it's clear that Durham has been investigating, you know, very deeply. He's got people that have gone into grand jury that are intimately connected with the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign. And, you know, if it gets to the point where personal lawyers for Hillary decide to flip and to assist the government uh, and they can kind of narrate through her uh, willingness to go along with planting false information to the FBI, that, that could be a really devastating moment. Jim Trusty, former federal prosecutor, now a member of the IFRA law firm. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is DeRoy Murdoch with your Fox News commentary coming up. More states are lifting mask mandates or planning to. California's ends today, but only for those who are vaccinated and not in all counties like Los Angeles. Notably, California's shift does not extend to schools. And that became sort of a thing on social media after the Super Bowl, which was held in Los Angeles. Picture after picture of celebrities without masks appeared on social media during the game. And afterwards, some pointedly commented that while celebrities weren't masked, despite the mask rule in L.A. County, the next day, kids would be required to wear them at school. And even as some states discuss lifting mandates in the coming weeks, not everyone is extending that to schools. Schools need a little more time. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker announced he was lifting the state's mask mandate at the end of the month. For community infection rates to drop, for our youngest learners to become vaccine eligible, and for more parents to get their kids vaccinated. Other states are lifting mask mandates in schools, though, in the coming weeks, including Massachusetts, Delaware, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Virginia's new governor, Glenn Youngkin, had campaigned on this issue in part, and several school districts sued him for signing an order that made masks optional. But then state lawmakers passed a bill cementing Youngkin's order. We're seeing the rest of the country also come around us because it's time to get back to normal. It's time to empower parents. And I'm so excited that Virginia is leading in a bipartisan way to give parents the, the power to choose whether their child wears a mask or not in school. New York's governor ended the state's indoor mandate that one must show proof of vaccination or wear a mask. And New York's mayor said private businesses can decide whether to enforce a mask. The state's governor said they will reassess school mask mandates in March. President Biden echoed his CDC director in an interview last week, saying states' moves here are probably premature, but that it's a tough call. Public health should be and has always been a local matter. So it is up to the local and state public health to determine 
what goes on. The CDC provides guidance. Dr. Brett Girard is a former assistant health and human services secretary under the Trump administration and a pediatric intensive care doctor. Where I think the problem right now is that the CDC guidance has often been very confusing. It's often been misleading. So states are actually taking leadership in doing these things on their own when the CDC should be advising. Now, where we are right now, uh, I do not believe that mask mandates are appropriate for children. And in fact, there's very little data to show that mask wearing in schools actually protects children. The rest of the world, if you're under five, there are no masks. They're prohibited for children because of the potential harm that they do and the lack of evidence. So the United States is really an outlier here. I do believe we should be dropping the mask mandates in schools. Sure, if you're at high risk, if you're not vaccinated, if you're obese, have diabetes, have cancer, transplant children, have all of those, exercise more care. But in general, we should not be wearing masks in school right now. But let's get into that a little bit more, um, because we know that... um more children have gotten COVID lately because of the transmissibility of Omicron. So there are parents talking about that, including a slight increase in hospitalizations. But at the same time, if we keep having these discussions about how cloth masks really, really don't do the trick, and a place like Los Angeles, for example, is requiring surgical grade masks for kids in schools like N95s and others like that, where if you're if you're going to have kids wearing masks, then should should the rule be then you have to have one that we deem effective. And what, what's the, what is the science then on cloth masks versus others? I always get nervous about saying, quote, the science, because <laughs> the science is always uh, inexact and, and evolving. But for adults, let me just say for adults and Omicron, cloth masks generally do not work, do not work at all. Now, let's deal with children. Uh, Cloth masks certainly won't work in children, Uh, but it has really not been demonstrated that a child could wear an N95 or an advanced mask well and that these will protect children. Mm. So it's not just as easy as slapping this on your face. You know, look, it's a it's a good idea if you're an adult and you're susceptible and you're going to a public indoor spot and you want to protect yourself, wear an N95 mask that fits. That has never been shown to be the case to provide protection in children. Some like the CDC director and Dr. Fauci have both said, as the virus changes, the science changes. And I think to the logical mind, right, that makes sense to a certain extent, right? A higher transmissibility versus a more severe strain. I think we can all get on board with that. But we're hearing accusations now that the science didn't really change. And so we've heard this criticism more lately as states begin to lift mask mandates that the science didn't change, the political science has. And you're not only a doctor, but you've served in government. How do you read things right now? I don't think that the science changing is accounting for the changes in policy. I think leadership is understanding that the science was never that strong to begin with. Secondly, is you have to be responsive to people. Uh, This is not all about infection control. Look, we can control the infection, but we have 100,000 people dying of drug overdoses. We have massive increases of undiagnosed cancer. We have children who are at a a psychiatric uh, crisis point. All these things are going on. So it's not simply about, quote, a science. You have to take into account all the other society harms that are going on. And that's not a scientific question. That's a policy question. So, you know, in summary, I don't think the science has changed. People, I think, are looking at the science in a more objective way. 
they're weighing all the alternatives, the harms and the benefits of the policies. And they know that they're pretty safe and are ready to return to their normal lives. Doctor, why did we go as far as we did in your mind, um, having kids as young as two? Which it's that's still a policy in many places, by the way, as you know, um, because as you noted earlier, the World Health Organization, for example, doesn't recommend them for that young. Neither does uh, Europe's Center for Disease Prevention. I think they don't even recommend them for any primary school age kids. That would be that's you know, 12 and that's under. Correct. So what, what correct. where did we pick this notion up of like age two uh, that you need to have a mask? I have no idea because it is not <laughs> grounded in science and. I think some people at the CDC are subject to the mask hysteria um, that other people uh, seem to have bought into. Nowhere else on the planet tries to force mask wearing of a three-year-old or a two-year-old. So I don't know. I mean, we, we got off on all these black or white. And if you don't believe uh, the world is black or the world is white, then you're anti-science. And it's just not like that. Uh, there are shades of gray that you have to make decisions. And the science uh, is often uh, not consistent with your political views or uh, how you want to impose things on America. And, and, and I think you just need to be straight with the public about what the science says. Under five, never any data. And as you pointed out, five to 12, you could permit children to wear them under special circumstances, but only if they want to. I want to ask what the CDC is waiting for in terms of giving guidance, as you noted, uh, states are sort of leading the way here. And actually, the CDC director and others on the White House COVID response task force uh, briefing last week were sort of pummeled with questions about that. And I want to share with our listeners, um, last week, the seven-day average of cases was 247,000. That was a 44% decrease. 13,000 hospital admissions, that was a 25% decrease. Deaths had gone up by 3%, up to 2,400 a day. When we talk about a metric or number in terms of next steps, next CDC level guidance on masks or really anything COVID related, what is the number? What should be the metric or should there should there be one? Or are we just looking more for a trend line as opposed to a number? Well, my first comment is the CDC had no idea what the metric should be or could be. Uh, not only did they not tell you when the new guidance would be out or even give you an estimate, because clearly they're weeks behind where they should be. But one reporter said, what's the hospitalization metric? Uh, you know, Dr. Walensky said, we're right. going to follow hospitalizations. And the reporter said, oh, what's the metric? And they said, we're just following that. So th they're either um, ignorant of the metric or they're not being transparent about the metric. The second answer is, um, I don't think there's one metric. I think you really do need to follow the trends. Um, what's happening locally um, across the board um, and I think for most jurisdictions, we really need to open the world back up again. I think you remember just a few weeks ago, there was a Johns Hopkins study that was yep. published. They didn't say that the things you do for public health didn't make a difference. What they said is government mandates of them did not make a difference. And mm -hmm. basically, the conclusion is if you just tell people um, what the science is and tell them how to assess their risk, they're going to do what's right for them. And having these mandates have no added benefit. Finally, doctor, as as much as we've talked over the past two years now about how there will be another pandemic and we need to prepare for one. And this is part of that preparation. What's the talk of any looming other variant? Are, is that out there? Are we seeing are we seeing that or is Omicron the end of this? 
so um, I'm a member of the Global Viral Network. So every two weeks, uh, the top scientists from around the world in, in virology speak about this. And I don't think we're seeing any alarming variant um, right now. Um, and the variants uh, over time will become slightly less alarming because of the fact that so many people have been vaccinated or have natural immunity. That being said, um, we have to understand that COVID is not going to zero. Um, there is going to be variants of COVID that continue to circulate in the population, uh, maybe for years and years. The issue is how do we decrease uh, the sequelae, the severe consequences of those infections? And we do that by keeping infections at a low level due to vaccination, natural immunity, and protecting the vulnerable. You know, instead of just sending 500 million uh, uh, diagnostic tests to everyone who requests them, the Biden administration should be sending them to those people who need that test uh, early to get on Paxlovid or Molnupiravir. Uh, these are the kind of strategies that we really need to deal with as we move to the future um, to prevent uh, uh, the next variants from attacking those who are highly vulnerable. And of course, in the future, uh, to get our strategies and our public-private partnerships to protect from any new pandemic of any virus. Dr. Bredjavon, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. Um, my pleasure, as always. Uh, I still believe, as I always have, give the public the right information, be humble and transparent, and Americans will know what to do. News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Deroy Murdoch. What's on your mind? President Joe Biden's no border policy has detonated an explosion of illegal alien apprehensions and gotaways at the so-called southern frontier. Millions of Americans consider this one of Biden's biggest failures, surpassed only by his utterly calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan. However, this fiasco is Biden's finest hour. Between February 1 and December 31, 2021, on Biden's watch, Customs and Border Protection apprehended a record 1.95 million illegals on the southern frontier versus 511,000 one year earlier during President Donald J. Trump's tenure, up 283%. And these are just the illegals whom Border Patrol intercepted. Biden led an estimated 500,000 gotaways get away. Where are they? Who knows? What we do know is that illegal aliens are arriving in America from some 150 countries. Biden has had an entire year to improve this rapidly devolving mess. Instead, he has not lifted a cuticle. Biden has not toured the border to fathom this situation, offer solutions, thank the Border Patrol for its valiant efforts, nor even yell at them and demand that they work harder. Having done nothing about this for a year, one must conclude that this is what Biden wants. The wide open border is no accident. It is deliberate. This is not a sign of incompetence. It is a reflection of Biden's relentless, intentional destruction of the southern frontier. But why? Why would Biden willfully obliterate the U.S.-Mexico boundary and vacuum millions of illegals north? I believe that the open border is designed to import the maximum number of future Democrats of America. 
Biden and his ilk see these people as potential voters, and they reckon a majority will be Democrats. The Service Employees International Union's Alicio Medina, an honorary chairman of the Democratic Socialists of America, seems to concur. Medina said that an influx of immigrants, quote, will create a governing coalition for the long term, not just for an election cycle, unquote. An even clearer indication of Democrats' true intentions lies in their reaction to legislation by Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. His measure declared, quote, the sense of Congress that allowing illegal immigrants the right to vote devalues the franchise and diminishes the voting power of United States citizens. Congressman Crenshaw elaborated, it should not be a partisan idea that the people who do not legally live in our country cannot legally vote in our elections. Congressman Max Rose, Democrat of New York, was not amused. He raged, this is a political stunt meant to divide us, meant to sow hatred. The Republican motion died 197 to 228 in the Democrat-controlled House in March 2019. The Dems voted overwhelmingly, 227 to 6, to hand ballots to illegal aliens. If Biden's blessed voting rights bill passes, God forbid, new federally imposed same-day registration would let these people approach the polls on Election Day and demand ballots. Officials will have no time to check their citizenship status. A new federal ban on voter ID would prevent election workers from asking for proof that these people are who they say they are. From soaring inflation to surging crime to Taliban terrorists sporting billions of dollars in abandoned U.S. military gear, Joe Biden's belly flops are innumerable. But America's breach border and the ensuing Katrina-esque flood of illegal aliens are not among them. Indeed, this wretched policy is Biden's most stunning triumph. I'm DeRoy Murdoch. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.